We thought that it would be fun to uh, invite you into a conversation about the book of Revelation. If, if you can imagine, uh, this is the kind of conversation that Steve and I would normally have in the, during the course of a week. We come in here and uh, sit at the table. And, no, we don't do this. But, um, we've never we, done this before. We've never done this before. It's been a hell of a But uh, I just want you to know that uh, it's my job to ask all the questions you turned in. So, uh, it's, my, it's my job to make sure we don't miss any questions, anything that, uh, that you wanted to know about and you turned in. Um, it's also my job to make sure Steve doesn't dodge the questions. So <laughs> I gotta, I, I'm here to make sure he answers. Um, so we're going to jump right in. Uh, we're going to start with a topic that quite a, few, uh, quite a few of you were interested in. Quite a few of your questions were focused on uh, the day of judgment and, and, and what events surround that day. And so um, why don't we start with the idea of uh, the seal on the forehead. Those with the seal on their foreheads, are they considered to be part of the judgment of the dead that's found in Revelation 20? Well, and let me uh, uh, say, um, before I I get started on some of this, that I had intended uh, to be able to put all of the scriptures uh, up on the the screen for you guys to to follow along, because there's going to be a number of scripture references that uh, both Scott and I make make this morning. So what I would like to do is I want to edit uh, this document that I prepared for this morning a little bit um, because there's a couple spelling errors and some things like that that I don't care about when I'm just speaking. But if I were providing it to you written, I'd want to fix. And then all of those references will be in here. So if you're taking notes today, you can feel free to try to jot as many of those down as possible. Uh, but if you want this document, um, just go ahead and email me at the church office or call into the church office, and this will be available um, within the next couple days. So uh, on that idea of, of those uh, that are sealed. The, the book of Revelation talks about that when you have expressed your faith in Jesus Christ, he seals you uh, for the day of salvation. And I think it's important to also mention, <coughs> excuse me, that when the Bible talks, I'm trying to not stand and preach, right? I'm going to sit and preach today, but um, that when the Bible talks about judgment, there are really two judgments that the Bible talks about. One, the book of Revelation talks about, that is the great white throne judgment. And that is the judgment for your salvation. And this is where, where the seal of Christ becomes very, very important because that also determines whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. So there's going to be the great white throne judgment and that determines and declares where you're going to spend your eternity, heaven or hell. But then there's also, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10, there's also the judgment seat of Christ. This is the judgment for Christians, all right? Here's how 2 Corinthians 5.10 describes it. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in his body, whether good or bad. The judgment seat of Christ does not determine your salvation. As God examines your actions and God examines the things that you've done, the judgment seat of Christ determines uh, the rewards that you're gonna receive in heaven, uh, it determines some conversations that God might want to have with you uh, to, to really rid your body of, of any sin that, that may, may still be there. Um, it, it's gonna, there'll be some accountability questions. And, and it's very important that we not mix up those two judgments. Because if you mix those up, what will happen is you'll read passages that are talking about the judgment seat of Christ, and you'll confuse it for the great white throne judgment, and all of a sudden you'll think that your salvation is going to be determined by what you did. 
And that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you are saved by expressing your faith in Jesus Christ, and he seals you for the day of salvation. Your salvation is not determined by what you do. Your rewards are determined by what you do, and there's a separate judgment for Christians just for that. Right. So. Right. Ephesians talks about the Holy Spirit as a seal guaranteeing right. your inheritance yeah. uh, to come. And so, yeah, when you become a Christian and, and you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are sealed. You're... you're you know, you don't, have, you don't have to worry about that back and forth. Right, and, that, and that, that's really the question of when people talk about, am I saved? The real question is, do you have the Holy Spirit? Right. If you have the Holy Spirit, you are saved because the Holy Spirit seals you for salvation. And there are fruits of the Holy Spirit, there are gifts of the Holy Spirit that you can examine your life to see if you do have the Spirit. But yeah, if you've got the Holy Spirit, you, you are saved. Well, what about, what about those who didn't necessarily receive the Holy Spirit when they believed in God, those who, uh, who died before Jesus, um, the Old Testament and people that preceded Christ? Yeah, I think this is a really, really great question. I, I'm grateful to whoever, whoever wrote this one in about what happens to those at the day of judgment that preceded Christ. And I want to share with you Galatians 3, 6 through 9. It says, consider Abraham, all right? So if there's anybody in kind of Old Testament history that preceded Christ, Abraham would certainly be someone that comes to mind. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then, those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, so those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So here's what uh, Paul is writing in the book of Galatians. He says, the gospel was preached to Abraham. Now, he didn't receive Christ yet because Christ hadn't come yet, but the gospel was preached to Abraham that someday uh, a savior was going to come and save the, the world through faith. That was preached to Abraham. And the Bible says Abraham believed what God says and God credited it to him as righteousness. So that's the whole, the whole gospel is how do we appear before God righteous? And he says, because Abraham believed God, he received the credit of righteousness, just like we received through faith in Jesus Christ. So all of those who preceded, um, the, the Bible teaches that they are going to be judged by their faith in God. Right? And, and if they believed what God said to them, however they received it at the time, whatever they understood at the time, and, and believe me, I don't think either of us would believe that when the gospel was preached to Abraham that he fully understood, oh, someday Jesus is going to come. Right. He's gonna go. He didn't understand that, but he believed God. And God said, I'll credit that to you as righteousness. And that's what happened to people that precede Christ. This is also what I would say, I don't know about you, but this is also what I would say to the argument of the person in you know, middle of nowhere India that has never heard of Jesus and has never, God gives credit to, to what we know and what we understand at the time of our death. Right. Yeah, he's so, not going to hold you accountable for something you never heard. You never heard. Right. You, you, never, you never had the opportunity to, to comment yeah. on Right. Yeah. Well, we know uh, from our experience and from the Bible that, that not everyone believed God. Uh, not everyone was credited with righteousness. Not everyone follows Jesus. So uh, the unfortunate reality is that there is a place called hell, um, you know, we talked a lot about heaven in Revelation, but, but not a lot about hell. And, uh, and so th there were a, a number of questions, actually, that kind of boiled down to, uh, to this. Uh, what happens to people in hell 
uh, once Satan is destroyed? Do people in hell get another chance? You guys have a lot of concerns about hell. <laughs> so um, we, we received a number of questions about, about hell. Just I think it's probably more curiosity than, than concern. But I'm really glad this question was asked as well because one of um, the some of the language that I used as we went through this series was that someday Satan is going to be destroyed. And um, I, I tried to work with that language the best I could. I never felt like that was the perfect language. And uh, I, I'm glad this question was asked so we can kind of flesh out some of this because here's what the book of Revelation teaches in verse 10 of chapter 20. It says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So when I talk about Satan being destroyed, I'm talking about his power being destroyed, his, his place in our life being destroyed. But the Bible actually teaches that Satan in particular is going to be thrown into a lake of fire where he will be tormented uh, day after day for, for all of eternity. And the question becomes, in terms of uh, uh, theological circles, what happens to people then that don't receive Christ? Do they receive the same fate as Satan, or is their fate something different? And as Scott and I kind of talked about this, I think there are three basic theories that float around Christianity when it comes to hell. Um, One is a flat-out denial of it, that uh, there's no way a loving God would ever create hell, and and they just flat-out deny that there is a hell. Um, And and you can start to get to the edge of Christianity, in my opinion, on some of this. And and the reason for that is, is because to deny any sort of uh, eternal, uh, ex- to, to deny any sort of existence of hell denies God certain attributes of justice and, and making things right and um, being, being the God that we know that he is. So, but there are some in the Christian stream that would just flat out deny that there's a hell. Right. Love is, wins, right? What's that? Love wins, right? Lo- love wins, <laughs> yeah. By, yeah. Yeah, anyway. Um, and uh, the, the second theory would be the annihilationist theory which um, uh, comes uh, in verse 14 of chapter 20 is where they come up with this, that the lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So it talks about that being the death. And so the annihilationist theory would teach that if you have not received Christ, you don't go to eternal life. Essentially, you, you die, and, and your punishment is that you are not able to enjoy eternal life with Christ and with the followers of Jesus. And the third view would be, um, I didn't know if this was the best way to say it, the torment view, <laughs> the, the, the eternal aspect of it. And this comes from Matthew 18, 8 and 9. Where, uh, and there's a number of times where Jesus refers to hell as eternal. Um, and um, when Jesus used it, hell, most often the Greek word that he used, not to get into too much logistics, was a word called Gehenna. Uh, And Gehenna was an actual place. It was a place where in the Old Testament, uh, children were killed and sacrificed. Uh, By the time Jesus had come around, Gehenna had turned into kind of a a trash dump and a a body dump where people whose families couldn't take care of them, their bodies were were, were dumped there. And it was uh, a place of just everlasting fire. It was on fire all of the the time. And this is where that torment view comes into place, that, that hell is a place where, like Satan, um, we'll be separated from God, and that's the main punishment of hell, and, and we'll, we'll be under you know, everlasting hardship. And, and so the question is, I reject, you know, I'm not going to speak for Scott, I reject the flat-out denial of hell. Um, I, I kind of reject that out of hand. I think there's too much evidence for it. So the question in my mind is, is it annihilationism 
or is it that eternal torment? And <clears throat> the fact of the matter is um, there's evidence for both in the Bible, and those are not necessarily uh, contradictory verses, right? When, when a Bible talks about torment, it, it could be talking about the torment of, of, of the death. And when they talk about teth, death, that's not to say there wasn't torment involved in the death. Uh, and, and so they're not necessarily contradictory scriptures, but here's the fact of the matter. The Bible does not talk about hell very much. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jesus referenced it um, by my count, eight or nine total times in all four gospels, right? And Jesus would sometimes say, you know, better to have, you know, your eye gouged out than to spend eternity in hell. And he'd just make a real quick reference to it. Um, the Bible's teaching on hell is that whether it's annihilationism or, or torment, you don't want to go there. <laughs> you want to go to heaven. And so express your faith in Jesus and, and go to heaven. Um, and so the Bible doesn't flesh out these details because it doesn't want to. And God doesn't want to. He just wants us to know, I believe, that there is a hell and heaven is better and we want to go there. What would you add to that, Scott? Well, this one's kind of hard for me because, like you said, there is evidence for, for both. Um, there's no evidence, I don't think, biblically for a denial of hell. There's plenty of evidence in the Bible that hell is real. Um, but there is, there, there is evidence in the Bible for, for annihilation annihilationism uh, and, and torment. And, uh, and one of the things I'd just like to say is how cool a word annihilationism <laughs> is. I mean, that just sounds epic. Um, I work but, on it a great deal. Right, <laughs> yeah. Annihilation is amazing. But um, the big part of the argument against hell being eternal is philosophical. Um, to be perfectly honest, this is, this is what I wrestle with. Um, how, can, how can a good God punish a lifetime of sin with an eternity of suffering? Uh, that, that doesn't, now, and like I said, it's philosophical. That's not a biblical argument at all, but, but as you weigh the balance, uh, and usually the answer to that is I don't understand what sin, uh, real, how far sin really goes and the extent that sin hurts God and the extent that it, it hurts the world, but just on the surface of it, the philosophical question uh, is hard to wrestle with. Um, how could God send someone to an eternity of suffering uh, for however many, you know, 50 years, 70 years of sinning? Um, and uh, honestly, I, I think that what you believe about hell really depends on what you believe the Bible teaches about a person's soul. Um, if you believe that the nature of a soul is that it, it will exist forever, um, by nature, a human soul exists forever, then, then hell has to be a, a place that exists forever. Um, because if a soul exists forever and the person, the, you know, and that soul rebels against God, there has to be a place for that soul to exist forever. Uh, but if you believe that eternal life is a gift from God that people receive when they accept Jesus, then it would make sense for the souls of people who don't accept God to come to an end at some point. Um, Matthew ten twenty eight, uh, I believe, teaches this, where it says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Uh, rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Um, and honestly, I've gone back and forth on this over the years. Um, for coming out of college, I was like all about, well, not all about it, like hooray <laughs> annihilation. But, I don't think but, anybody's no, all I, about any of these but, things. But, <laughs> but I, I believe this very strongly. And, and as, I've considered, as I've considered the evidence in Scripture, I've backed off that position some. Uh, because honestly, it really does uh, indicate both. The Bible seems to indicate both things. Um, and so the answer, the answer to the second question here, uh, though, I think is clearer. 
the second question here asks, uh, do people in hell get another chance? And I think the answer is, is clearer to that in, Bible, uh, in the Bible. After Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, uh, chances seem to be done. Right. Um, the, the, the answer to that is no. And I, I think in that parable of Lazarus, that, that Jesus parable, or if you want to believe it's the real thing, but right. you know, there's a little bit of debate about that, but I think in that, that story, Jesus teaches pretty vividly that even if people could get a second chance, they wouldn't take it. Right. So. Right. Well, and I think the thing that yeah. we can definitely agree on is, is whether hell is torment or annihilation, we don't want any part of it. Yeah, I don't want so. to find out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So. so, yeah. I mean, it really could be either way. That's, I don't know how satisfying an answer that is. Well, but. yeah, I'm, th- there's just not a ton of evidence either way. You know, other than you don't want to go there. And that was, uh, I don't know if you guys know the magician uh, of Penn and Teller, Penn. He, he's an atheist, and he told this story one time about after one of his um, magic shows, a guy came up and just handed him the Bible, and he talked about how respectful the guy was. And he said, hey, I just want you to read this and, um, you know, try to, try to seek out God if you can. And Penn did a YouTube video about it, and he said, you know, I was just really blown away by it because he said, if you believe in hell, how, how could you not reach out to someone that you believe was going there? And that's really, that's really is the case. Not only is the teaching of the Bible when it comes to hell that you don't want to go there, but the teaching of the Bible when it comes to hell is you shouldn't want anyone to go there. Right. And so it really fuels our evangelism efforts and, and fuels our uh, desire to see people come to Christ to be saved because we don't want anybody to go there. So... Well, while we're on controversial subjects, why don't we jump into another one? Why, let's talk about this thousand years in, in the mm-hmm. book of Revelation. We've got a, a, a movie coming out with Nick Cage soon, and, and I'm, you know, I love Nick Cage. There's Be sure no, to base all of your theology on that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Basing your theology on Nicolas Cage, always a good idea. So uh, when, when is the day of judgment? Let's, let's start with that. Is, the, is it beginning, does it start the thousand year reign, or does the day of judgment come after? Well, it, uh, this is out of Revelation 20, um, the, this thousand-year reign of Christ. And uh, when I shared it with all of you, um, the, the Revelation 20 teaches that when Jesus returns, he is going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. And part of the purpose of that thousand-year reign is going to be a reward for those that passed away for their faith, that they're going to rule somehow with Christ on the earth. Um, and uh, this question is, when will then the day of judgment be? Will it be before or after that? And if you believe Revelation is a series of chronological events, and I actually think you have to be a little bit careful about that. We tried to treat this as a series of scenes in a play. But if you, you do follow that this is in a chrono, chronological uh, series of events for a reason, if you believe that, um, then the judgment of the dead would be after the thousand-year reign of Christ. So... Um, it appears to me that it's after, although I don't think the purpose of Revelation is to, to give us a sequence of events, right. but it certainly appears that it's after. Well, during, during one of your messages, um, I, I remember you, you mentioned that you changed your mind about this, that right. you used to believe uh, one thing and, and you've changed your mind. So, so why did you change your mind about the thousand years? Yeah, the, the two um, basic theories about that thousand-year reign, and Scott's going to share a little bit more here in a minute about all the different theories, but the two kind of broad theories is that that thousand uh, years of Christ is either real and it's literal or it's figurative, that it's symbolizing that Christ reigns and rules supreme. 
And before I started this sermon series, I would have told you that I thought it was most, I mean, nobody can know for 100% sure, but I would have told you that I thought it was probably uh, figurative. Uh, as I read it and as I studied it for this message, I came to the conclusion that I, I believe it's literal. I believe Christ will reign on the earth for a thousand years. Uh, and the reason that I changed my mind was as I read it and as I studied it deeper, it just didn't feel like imagery to me. Um, it, it felt like uh, John was trying to lay out uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit an actual series of events that were going to happen in the last days. Um, and, and one of the things that really convinced me the other way what was that idea of it being a reward for the saints that have fallen. Um, I, I didn't really view that being very um, figurative language. It felt like literal language to me. And, and while nobody can know for sure, I, I believe it is literal. I believe Christ, after he returns, will reign on the earth for a thousand years. Yeah, without diving into it too deeply, because this is a rabbit hole that, that, I mean, people have gone down for lifetimes. I had a, a professor uh, in Bible college whose doctoral thesis was, was on this, and, uh, and he made me write a paper on it. And so uh, I'm going to try to share uh, just a couple details with you on really there's four, there's four views here um, in the book of Revelation. And, uh, and the oldest one, the, the one that the early church almost unanimously held, uh, is the one that Steve just moved to. Um, if you want to label it, we'll call it historic premillennialism. And that's a, a super long word. Uh, historic just means it's the oldest view. It's, it's what people thought originally. And, uh, and premillennialism uh, just means what it sounds like, before the thousand years, that the church will go through a period of tribul- tribulation, uh, and then Jesus will return to reign on earth for that thousand years, and then the final judgment will happen. Uh, and the new heavens and the new earth will come after the final judgment. Um, and, and so that idea that the tribulation happens before the thousand years, that's what makes it premillennial, uh, before the thousand years. And, um, and this led to, uh, to Augustine, uh, and he was teaching that the thousand years actually began when Jesus was born. Uh, this is the, the figurative view that, that Steve was talking about, that this thousand-year period of time began when Jesus was born, uh, and it was symbolic. It wasn't, in actu- it wasn't actually a thousand years long, but just a long time. Uh, right, and that, that Jesus would continue to reign through the church until the end of the age. Um, and so this view sees the thousand years as a symbolic period of time, that uh, the Antichrist in Revelation symbolizes any power that's opposed to the church in history. Uh, so there have been many Antichrists that have come and opposed the church and opposed uh, God, and the tribulation uh, symbolizes the church's struggle with evil, that the church is always going through this time of tribulation. Uh, and, and honestly, this is probably the most widely held view among Christians today, I think. Uh, most Christians, most churches, I think, would believe uh, in this. Especially from our background. Right. It's, very, yeah. it's, a, yeah. it's a popular view uh, that we're talking about symbolic, uh, a symbolic period of time here. And then uh, there's a small group. This was uh, popular uh, about 100 years ago, 150 years ago, and it's really not uh, that popular now, but there's a small group of people that still believe uh, in, in post-millennialism, the, the after the thousand years, that Jesus won't come back until the church has evangelized the entire world. That's essentially the theory, that it's our responsibility to go out and, and share the gospel at, in every corner of the globe, and Jesus won't come back until we do that. 
his, his return in, ends up being dependent on us. And, and it, this is a little appealing, I, honestly. When, when I first heard this theory, it is a little appealing because it motivates the church. Right. It motivates us to take the good news to everyone in the world in order to start this golden age, in, in order that we can reign with Jesus for a thousand years. We have a job to do first. And, uh, it, but I also think, honestly, it's pretty optimistic to think that everyone in the world will accept Jesus before God brings the final judgment. In fact, yeah. not only is it optimistic, I think it's against what the Bible yeah, teaches. Yeah, the Bible teaches against that. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I, I, I don't believe that this view is really a legitimate one, but I, I want to share it with you. And, and the last view, uh, the last view has become popular really just in the last hundred years and really popular just in the last 30 years or so. Um, I'm going to call it dispensationalism. There's a lot of, a lot of different labels that we call it, but uh, if you want to, you can just call it left behind theology. Um, <laughs> Because really, this is, this is the theology of the left-behind books, the left-behind movie, uh, that, the Kirk Cameron one and the Nick Cage one that's coming out. Uh, this, is, this is the theory that drives that movie. Um, it's really elaborate. Uh, it's really complicated. I, can't, I don't want to get into all the details of it here, but it centers around the idea that the Jews are still God's chosen people. Um, that, that the church's responsibility is to be a tool for God to convert the people that he loves, the, the Jews, um, to his chosen people, his chosen nation. And in this view, uh, the church is raptured. Uh, and, and you've heard that word, the rapture, that we, we you know, those who believe, are believers uh, leave our bodies uh, and are taken to heaven so that the church doesn't have to go through the time of tribulation. Uh, the church is raptured, it's taken to heaven before uh, the events in Revelation take place. So the book of Revelation, according to this theory, uh, is talking about people who, who weren't believers ahead of time. Right. Um, it's talking about uh, people who are, God has used like a last-ditch effort to try to convert the Jews, to try to convert his chosen people, uh, and, and the idea is that faithful Christians shouldn't have to go through these things. We shouldn't have to go through the tribulation, and, and then when Jesus returns, he brings the church back with him uh, in order to join with the Jews and the other new believers who accepted Jesus during this time, during the tribulation uh, on earth. And so really those are the four main views on this thousand-year period of time, um, and, and, and I know that's a lot to take in at once, but really it boils down to whether you think the thousand years is literal or whether you think it's symbolic. Um, because really that's right. the choice. And you'll notice through this series, you've noticed probably a little bit of a hodgepodge with a couple of those theories. And, and, and the reason for that is I, I feel very strongly, and I, I'm, I think, Scott, you do too, that I mean, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't use the Bible to fit into like a, a theological theory or construct. Right. You know, and instead, we, we, should, we should have the Bible first, and then our theology should come from that. And so I, I, I wouldn't necessarily put me in any one of those views. Right. I mean, there are some elements of each of them that I think, that I think are true, and that's probably the, the way it, it actually is. We're probably all a little bit wrong. Yeah. Um, about about different things. That really should be our motto. We're all a little we're, bit we're probably wrong. all a little bit wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that should be our end times um, theories, but... Yeah, anytime you see Left Behind or the new Nick Cage one, one coming out, that's all dispensationalism, right. um, you know, right. that, that idea. Right, and, th and that yeah. theory was made popular through uh, the Schofield Reference Bible uh, and then Dallas Theological Seminary really uh, championed that view. Um, and and it became, it's become very popular. Um, it it makes a for a good of, movie. Sold I a lot of books. Right, yeah. I mean, they sold yeah. a lot of books on it. Yeah. Um, but don't, don't, I mean... I think there's little evidence for it, just to put my cards on well, the table. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, and, and honestly, I mean, don't yeah. get your theology from, from a work of Christian fiction. Um, 
that, if you ever start a sentence with Nicolas Cage once said, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know you're heading down the wrong path. <laughs> That's so. true. <laughs> so, well, what about, what about those who die before Jesus comes back? We, we've talked about this a little bit um, with the idea of a rapture or not a rapture, um, but, but, but this is a little different. Th- those who die before Jesus returns, um, are we in God's presence upon death or is there some sort of waiting period for the day of judgment to come? Yeah, I, I believe upon death we are in the presence of the Lord. Um, and I, I'll base this on a couple of things. One is uh, the story of the thief on the cross from, from the New Testament. Jesus says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, he writes, to be away from the body is to be home with the Lord. And in, in addition to that, when you read the book of Revelation, there are these images of heaven, and it appears that there are people there, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in heaven. And so, you know, where did they come from? Right. And, and so, I, yeah, I believe, and, and just as a side note, it is a multitude of people. You know, this, um, I've sat under some teaching before that acts like, you know, 20 people are getting in. <laughs> and, you know, when, when the Bible would teach that there's a multitude of people too numerous to count right. that, 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 are, that are in heaven. God is a gracious God. And so, yeah, I believe upon your death, you are in the presence of the Lord. Now, that is not to say upon your death, you are in the New Jerusalem. Right. The New Jerusalem has not yet been completed. And, and so we are in, um, you know, I, I've heard it called a number of things, but for just so there's no confusion, I'll call that heaven, that, that we're in heaven with the Lord. And then upon the return of Jesus, he will usher in the new Jerusalem and the dead in Christ will rise and, and those that are alive will, will go and, and we'll all go to that new Jerusalem, that eternal city. Right, right. So when we so. talk about heaven, I mean, we're really talking about two places. We're, yeah. talk, we're talking about being where God is now and yeah. then being where God is after the final judgment. And, th- right. and those are two different places. Yes, Right, there are two different places, right. yeah. Well, um, I, <laughs> like, this question comes across a little combative, but I don't think it was meant that way. Um, how do you justify uh, the chronology of Revelation? We're talking about the order of things. Yeah. Um, in particular, the, the seals, uh, the, the 144,000, the number of people mentioned in heaven, the trumpets, the bowls, all the judgments, and the thousand years. How do you justify all of that with what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Yeah, I, yeah, I like this. Because um, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verses 15 through 18 says, according to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left at the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will live with the Lord forever. So this question is asking uh, what Paul lays out in 1 Thessalonians four fifteen through 18, is that in conflict with what the book of Revelation teaches in terms of the 144,000, the, the seals, the bulls, and, and the thousand-year reign. And I, I don't view it as being in, in conflict. I, I view it as being in concert. Um, that uh, to, to me, um, what First Thessalonians four verses fifteen through eighteen um, is trying to do in a paragraph what the Book of Revelation does with twenty twenty. Oh, great! Help me out. Twenty three chapters. Twenty one. Twenty one chapters. Yeah. Twenty two. I only just spent four months in it, but um, and, and so what one is is trying to give uh, like a, a a snippet, 
and the other is trying to give the full story. So it would be like if you happened upon an, an accident and someone said, oh, there was, there was a car accident. And then you talk to somebody else and they said, well, the light was uh, turning uh, yellow, turning red, and the person went through the red light and another person came through and they, they collided and um, <laughs> they, they collided, and there was a big, big accident. They're both telling the truth. One said there was an accident, the other gave more detail. I think that's what's happening in 1 Thessalonians or Revelation. Um, First Thessalonians is trying to give us the snapshot. Revelation is trying to give us the full story. I verified just now that we're both a little wrong. It's 22 chapters. 22, so. thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, speaking of those 22 chapters of, of Revelation, um, this question came in, and, and I, I think it's a question we've all had at, at a certain point in life. Um, why is this book here? <laughs> why, why did God give the Revelation? It's so different from other books in the Bible. Why, why is it there at all? It is. It's so, it's so different. Um, it, it's a little bit similar to parts of Daniel, um, a, a little bit similar to parts of Ezekiel, but there's nothing really like it in the New Testament. Right. I mean, it, it to- totally stands alone in, in the New Testament. And, and the only thing I can really give you is chapter 1, verse 3 of Revelation. Um, blessed is the one who reads the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and take to heart what is written because the time is near. And then in verse 7, look, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him. Um, the only thing I can tell you is what John uh, told us and that is that uh, God gave us this revelation to be a blessing. Um, are you going to understand everything in it? No. I mean, like you were pointing out, I mean, brilliant scholars have thought about this for you know, a couple thousand years. Since the time Jesus left, there's been arguing and, and bickering ab- about this book of Revelation. And so you're not going to understand it all. But, but here's the promise of Scripture. And I don't know of any other Scripture that promises this in this way, a blessing just for having read it. Right. That, that you will be blessed. And I believe you are blessed from reading all Scripture, but I, I don't think any other book starts that way. You're going to be blessed if you read this. And so I would encourage you to read the book of Revelation. There is a blessing in there. as you see. And the other thing I discovered about Revelation was that there is a lot, uh, there are many more parts that are easy to understand than are difficult. It's a lot easier to understand than I, than I thought it was. Um, I had always been so intimidated by it, and I said, well, I'm going to take my sabbatical last year. I'm going to take my sabbatical and study the book of Revelation. And as I got into it and started reading it more and more, I, I really discovered there are some parts that are difficult to understand, but there are many more parts that are just wonderful Uh, Because you see how God wins in the end. And one of the great lessons that I walked away with Revelation is that even when you don't know what God is doing and and his ways seem mysterious, he accomplishes his will. Like there are these moments when you're reading Revelation when you're going, nobody would be one to you, God, because of what you're doing. You know, what you're doing is going to drive people away. And you see a number too numerous to count come to him because God knows what he's doing. And so Revelation, if nothing else, it affirms that in me. That, man, God can be trusted. He knows what he's doing. And I would just encourage you to read it. I think it's a great, I think it's a great book. Uh, it, it is not meant for prediction. It is meant for introspection. Right. And I can't highlight that enough. It is not meant to give us a full layout of how things are going to end. And instead, it is meant for us to examine ourselves. Um, are, are we being faithful? Are we staying true? And it is meant to give us a picture of how great and glorious and wonderful God is. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I took a semester-long class 
on this book in college with the professor I mentioned earlier. And we spent three weeks, the first three weeks of class, on this question. I mean, this isn't a silly question. The first three weeks of our class was just, what is this? You know, like, what, what am I reading right now? Is this prophecy? Is this, are these stories? Is this, you know, what, what, what is it? Is it poetry? Is, and, and, and the answer is yes. <laughs> I mean, it is all those, but also no. You know, it's not only those things. And, right. and, and so, I mean, it's not an easy question to answer when, when you start analyzing what exactly is going on in this book, what, what's happening here. Yeah. Um, but it, it is clear, uh, according to the book, that, that it's, it's meant for a blessing. It's meant to encourage the church. It's meant to encourage God's people um, by, by showing us the end, by showing us how certain God's victory is. Right. Uh, I think it's incredibly uh, encouraging. So, well, the, the rest of the New Testament centers on, <coughs> on Jesus and on the establishment of, of his church, but uh, Revelation can get confusing. I, I think we, well, we can get into the details of it a little bit and, and get a little lost. Um, Jesus is mentioned a lot in this book, but it's maybe not as clear as other places in, in right. the New Testament. Um, and, and the names that, that he's mentioned by are, are different maybe than we're used to. So um, this question that came in I think is a really good one. Uh, what, are, what are some of the different names of Jesus in the book of Revelation? All right, let me, I'm just going to give you the list. And again, um, <laughs> this, uh, this document is, is available to you in the next couple of days. I, I want to fix a couple of things, but um, it'll be a, a, available to you in the next couple of days, but you can get it there too. Um, names of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Son of Man, chapter 1, verse 13. The first and the last, chapter 1, verse 17. The living one, chapter 1, verse 18. The Son of God, chapter 2, verse 18. The faithful and true witness, chapter 3, verse 14. The lion and the tribe of Judah, chapter 5, verse 5. The root of David, chapter 5, verse 5. The lamb, chapter 5, verse 6. Shepherd, chapter 7, verse 17. Messiah, chapter 12, verse 10. Faithful and true, chapter 19, verse 11. The word of God, chapter 19, verse 13. King of Kings, 1916. Lord of Lords, 1916. The Alpha and Omega, chapter 22, verse 13. The Morning Star, chapter 22, verse 16. And that's good stuff right there. (laughs) Those are the names of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Right, and by my count, there's 16. Right. And that's just the first occurrence of each different name. Right. I mean, those names are repeated yeah, throughout. Yeah, repeated throughout, um, yeah. This is a book that's thoroughly about Jesus. Right. So. Yeah. Well, speaking of Jesus, uh, his return it seems a little crazy. You know, the, the, the imagery of, you know, a sword coming out of his mouth and his eyes on fire. Um, and you mentioned that, that Jesus would have a tattoo. I did. Uh, you mentioned that he would have a two tattoo when he returned, and uh, and so here's here's the question. You, can, you guys saw this coming, right? So here's the question: Why would Jesus have a tattoo when Leviticus nineteen twenty eight says it's forbidden? I, I'm really really happy this question was asked because uh, this is one of those things um, that that I've I've thrown in kind of a flippant way, um, and, and have gotten questions about it throughout throughout the years because a lot of times I'll just use it as a one-line thing, you know, he's coming back with fire in his eyes, a sword in his mouth, and a tattoo on his thigh. People are like, Jesus had a tattoo? And so um, I'm glad to be able to uh, get into this a little bit with you. Um, th- this question is from um, a passage of scripture from Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus, and I, I want to do a sermon series on Leviticus sometime. Um, yes. Because I, I think it would be really, really interesting. I'm um, for that. Uh, this is uh, from uh, Leviticus 19.28. All right, and here's what it says. 
Uh, Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put a tattoo on yourselves, for I am the Lord. And so the the question becomes, um, is tattooing forbidden in the Bible? Um, And let me say, first of all, to any minor children uh, in the room, if your parents say it's forbidden for you, then it's forbidden for you until you're 18. Um, And and so you you listen to your parents on this issue. But I want to talk a little bit about Leviticus and tattooing and why I believe that Jesus does have a tattoo um, and and get into that a little bit. I think if you're going to exegete the book of Leviticus chapter 19 that way, I, I, want, you to, uh, I, I want you to exegete or study that passage consist, consistently throughout. So a lot of people will point to Leviticus 19, uh, 28 and say, it forbids putting a tattoo on your mark, but the, uh, putting a tattoo on your body. But nine verses before that, in the same chapter, in the same context, the passage also says, do not plant your field with two kinds of seed and, and do not wear clothing wooden with two kinds of material. So if you're going to fairly interpret that passage, you have to do it consistently. And if you're wearing a polyester cotton blend. Sorry. We're going to stone you now. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I have, uh, in raised beds at my home, I have two different seeds planted side by side. Um, I, I'm in violation of, of Leviticus 19, uh, if, if you interpret it that way. Now, the, the important thing, I don't have time to get into all of those examples. The important thing with the book of Leviticus is that you look at the cultural context of why God would command that. Because in, in the Old Testament, there are national laws. There are laws that were just for Israel. Um, there are uh, cultural laws that were for Israel at the cultural time that they lived. Like if they were in slavery, there were certain laws. And then there are what they would call, what you would call holiness laws. Um, and those laws uh, are, are for all time. And, and typically the way you can tell something is a holiness law is Jesus or, or one of the New Testament writers repeats it in the New Testament. And so you can, you can see what those holiness laws are. I believe tattooing uh, was a cultural or national law for Israel at the time. Now, let me explain what I mean by this. Tattooing, as it exists today, did not exist in the Old Testament. Um, tattooing today is for ornamentation, um, uh, to, uh, decoration. Uh, in the Old Testament, tattooing was a form of worship. Right? You, would, you notice what the passage said, that you would mark your body for the dead. Uh, You would mark your body for the God of the dead. This was an act and a symbol of worshiping. And and so when God said, uh, do not, and I understand how controversial this idea is. When when God said, do not tattoo your body, he was saying, do not put on yourself a pagan symbol worshiping the God of the dead. He was not intending to forbid you from getting a Winnie the Pooh tattoo. Okay? (laughs) Uh, that, that his intention was not um, tattooing you from getting a Scooby-Doo tattoo, right? This was an act of worship in the Old Testament to a false God. And, and uh, God was saying to his people, you are not going to get the God of the dead tattooed on your body. You worship me and you worship me alone. Um, so 
the question, the person that asked this question, they went on uh, to, to ask um, something that they had been taught by another pastor that I wanted to get into a little bit, that they thought that Jesus, as a Jewish rabbi, he would be wearing a prayer shawl, and that the prayer shawl would hang down to about his thigh. And so they, they believed or asked the question that, is it possible that Jesus has King of Kings and Lord of Lords tattooed not on his thigh, but on his prayer shawl uh, that, that would hang down to his thigh? And um, possible? Yes. Um, po- possible. Probable, in my opinion, not. And, and the reason is, is because, and I asked Scott about this before I, I, I left for, uh, we had a funeral out of town. Uh, I had to be out of town for the last week, but um, I asked him about the idea of, uh, is the prayer shawl ever referred to as a part of the body? So in, in the book of Revelation, it says that written on his thigh is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Ha, is the prayer shawl anywhere else in scripture ever referred to as a body part? And to my knowledge, it is not. Yeah, I, don't, that, I haven't found anything other, okay. than, other than the, the, eagle's, the, the, the eagle's wings. Right? In, the, in the Old Testament, the prayer shawl is referred to as eagle's wings because when you would hold up the prayer shawl, they almost look like wings. Right. And so uh, the Old Testament taught that when the Messiah came, he would have healing in his wings. Um, and and the, the Jewish people of the New Testament believed that Jesus' prayer shawl would bring healing. And so one time he's walking through a crowd of people and a woman reaches out and grabs the hem of his garment, the prayer shawl, because she believed that Old Testament teaching that there would be healing in his wings, healing in his prayer shawl. That is the only unusual reference to a prayer shawl that I am aware of. I believe Jesus is going to have written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Right. Well, so, I think this is another And I don't instance. believe it goes against Scripture either. Right. Well, and you mentioned it earlier, so. that the idea of, of interpreting the Bible through your theology. Right. You know, when we were talking about the millennium, I, th- I think this is another instance of that, where I believe tattoos are forbidden. So this can't be talking about a tattoo, when it seems clearly to be. Um, and, and so you, if you let your theology interpret Scripture for you, you're, you can maybe get into some dangerous waters. Yeah. Um, I got a kick out of this. I just want to re- read you this. Uh, this made me laugh this morning. The verse before, Le- Leviticus 19.27, yeah. the verse right before uh, the, the verse about tattoos says, do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. So all you non-bearded guys out there, <laughs> violation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you really do have to go, for those cultural laws that I believe the tattooing law is, you really do have to go into the culture that existed and why God commanded against that. And there's reasons for each of those, for each of those, of, of those commands. But uh, I'm really glad that person asked that question because it's something I've always wanted to explain my view on that. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't think uh, tattooing as it exists today is forbidden from the Bible. However, you're the youth master and you'll back <laughs> me up on this. If you're a minor child and your parents say it's forbidden, it's forbidden for you. True. So. That's yeah. true. That yeah. goes for a lot of things, not just tattoos. Right. By, yes. by the way. Right. Yeah, yeah. We can, you can preach that. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's a whole other message. Right, exactly. So well, why don't we change gears a little bit? Um, I, let's get to a question that I'm going to try to stay out of. Right. Because in the office, you, you, guys, no soul. you guys call me the heartless one. Um, lots of people. This was more than one question. Maybe the, the question we got most. Uh, people wanted to know about their pets. Uh, will our animals be in heaven? Well, to, to go through this, uh, 
pretty briefly, because we're starting to run out a little bit of time here. Uh, I feel very, very strongly that animals will be in heaven. I think it's clear that uh, in uh, heaven, Jesus comes out of heaven riding a horse. That there are animals in, in heaven. We know that there are animals on earth. So I, I believe that new city, that new Jerusalem, it's going to be some combination of heaven and earth. I have no reason to believe that there won't be animals in, in heaven. Now that goes, the deeper question is, will our pets be in heaven? We have a 20-pound beagle uh, named Daisy. Will she be in heaven? I personally don't see it happening. But, um, <laughs> but that's, just, that's just based on behavior. <laughs> that's right? based on behavior. <laughs> but, um, you know, an animal, uh, an animal does not have the, the soul or the propensity to be able to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord. And that's a little bit problematic for them to receive the resurrection of the dead. Possible, yes. Probable, not. Um, but I, I, I think we will have pets in heaven. There will be animals in heaven. Um, and, and there won't be any, any sin problem between men and animals anymore. Uh, that happened ever since the flood. Ever since then, you get the impression that man and animal lived in, in unity um, but before that. Um, and I believe it will get back to that. So I, I believe there will be animals in heaven. Uh, I, I feel less certain, a lot less certain about our individual pets. Not to say it can't happen. Right. God can do whatever he wants. Yes, so, he can. Yes. I'm not going and to. And we're moving on. Yes, we are. So This guy will crush your heart <laughs> on this issue. I, that's true. You don't want to talk to me about this. So let's, let's stay on heaven. Let's, let's kind of finish up this way. The, the, our last few questions, let's just stay with heaven. Right. Um, let's talk about sin. Uh, will, will there truly no longer be sin in heaven? Yes, there will no longer be sin in heaven. Yeah, that, that's part of the, the story of Revelation is how those things come to an end. And it's not that, um, it's not that there won't be um, choice in heaven per, per, per se, but just that that part of us is, is not going to be anymore, and there won't be temptation. I mean, I suppose if someone wanted to leave heaven, I guess they could, but that, that there won't be any temptation to do that. You know, that temptation part and that sin part is, is done away with. So, yep, no more sin. Well, Revelation talks about uh, the, that there's no sea in heaven. And uh, this question, I want to know if, if God had something against the sea. Why, right. why is there no sea in heaven? And, if, and is there land in heaven? I mean, is there these physical yeah. things that, that we know? Um, in, in the book of Revelation, the sea is a symbol of, of chaos and evil. And, and so what John is trying to say when he says the sea was no more is that evil and chaos are no more. Uh, things are, are, are in perfect order in heaven. I, I believe that there will be land in heaven. I, I think, um, you know, not any hard definitive proof, but the way it is declined is a, a new Jerusalem and uh, a new earth. It certainly would appear that there's going to be some pretty beautiful earthly stuff. Right. So. Well, this is a big one. A couple of people had this one. Uh, will we be reunited with our families in heaven? Yes, uh, I, I, believe, I believe that that is true um, very, very strongly, that uh, family uh, in, in the Bible, God cares deeply about family. Um, in, in the book of Genesis, creation is not very good until God creates the concept of family. So us not being united with our families would, would make absolutely no sense to me. God created us to be in family. Now, there won't be marriage in heaven, the Bible says there, there would be no more purpose of marriage. 
uh, but I believe that we will be reunited uh, with our families in, in heaven. Because um, you see this reuniting aspect with Jesus. When he resurrects, he reunites with his friends and uh, it appears his family. Um, you, you see that people are recognizable in their resurrected bodies. Um, and so we'll recognize each other. Um, and uh, um, yeah, Cheryl's, <laughs> Cheryl's mom, we were up there for that funeral and, and she had made the comment that she was concerned she was going to be so attractive her husband wouldn't recognize her in her new body. <laughs> and so he's going he's gonna to recognize you. He'll, he'll, be, he'll be just fine. So we're, we're going to recognize each other and we're going to be reunited with each other. So. Well, yeah, and I, I, I've always found that interesting that people did recognize Jesus, but not immediately. Right. You know, I mean, they thought he was the gardener or, right. or you know, he appeared on, and, and eventually. He had to reveal himself. Right, right. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. over a meal or as right. he explained the truth of scripture. And so I think it shows that, that people that we've known well, people that we've loved well, we, we will recognize those people. Right. Um, it's not necessarily about that they're, they're going to look the same, but, but we'll know them. Right. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, I, I believe we will as well. Well, this is one, I, I, I appreciate this question because this is a question I've always had, this, this, yeah, uh, this you know, second to last one, the, the penultimate question here. Um, where do the kings and nations on, of the earth come from? Revelation 21 uh, in verse 24 through 27 talks about heaven, and then it talks about the kings and the nations of the earth uh, will be able to come and go through the gates of heaven. And, and, and who are these people? Where do they come from? Yeah, it's a, a really, really interesting um, question. As Scott was saying, it's describing this new Jerusalem. And uh, John writes, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city did not need sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamp, uh, Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light for the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. So there seems to be these kings, after everything is said and done, that come into heaven. And the idea seems to be that they could almost like come and, and go. And so the question is, who are they? And, and what are they up to? And um, um, what, what, what's going on? And I think, <clears throat> as I read that, that that is a series of verses that are describing heaven. Again, it's not intended to be a chronology. Got it out that time, chronology. Um, and, and I don't believe it's trying to teach that there's gonna be these kings that can come and go as they please. Rather, I think it's describing the, the new heaven. And, and when you take a look at the, the Greek text that that was written in, it appears that it's not describing like nation states, but rather it's describing people groups. And so what John is saying is that in heaven, all the nations of the world are going to be represented there. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation is going to be in heaven. This is why it's so important that as Christians, uh, we rid ourselves of racism and we rid ourselves of that kind of bigotry because all nations, all colors, everybody is, is going to be in heaven and we've got to learn to love one another. And so I think that's more what John is, is teaching. I don't believe that there's going to be I don't think there's going to be uh, this kind of mystical group of kings that can kind of come and go as they please. Um, I, I think rather he's just trying to say everybody's going to be there. All people groups. All people will be there. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, I'm going to let you kind of take this home. The, the last question that, that we got is uh, really the big picture. Um, yeah. what, what are your takeaways? What, what do you want us to walk away with uh, after this, this series on the book of Revelation? Okay. All right. Um, 
Yeah, uh, let me go ahead and um, we're going to kind of close out this time and uh, I'll invite the band to, to come up while, while we do this and then we're going to sing a song of invitation. Um, that the, the takeaways of the book of Revelation and uh, I uh, enjoyed this series a great deal. I enjoyed the study of it on my sabbatical. Uh, I enjoyed the, the preaching and the studying it uh, e- each week. And, and here's kind of my big takeaway that in order for God to bring uh, about for us the eternity that he wants us to have, certain things need to be done away with. Uh, Sin needs to be done away with. Satan needs to be done away with. Death needs to be done away with. And the book of Revelation is the story of how God uh, destroys the power of those things so that we can enter into eternity without sin, death, and disease. Uh, One of the other big takeaways that I walked away with from the book of Revelation is how uh, big and glorious and wonderful our God is. You see these images of God again and again in the book of Revelation, and you just get to see uh, what a big God he is and, and how much control that he has and that he is in control of things. Even when they feel like they're out of control, God is always in complete control. Um, and, and the other uh, thing that I walked away with from the book of Revelation is how important it is uh, that we get the message of Jesus out. That the e- eternity is coming and eternity is real. Both sides of it. Heaven is real and I believe hell is real. And, and it's important that we get uh, the message of Jesus out that through faith in him, by making him your Lord, um, your eternity can be, can be secured. And it's secured in Jesus Christ alone. So you stand with me. Uh, we're gonna sing a song of invitation. And uh, I'd, love to, um, I'd love to talk to you. If you've never... Um, have, if you never have had Jesus as your Lord, I'd love to begin a conversation with you about what that would look like. And if you are a Christian and uh, you're just having a hard time today, maybe holding on, you're having a hard time with some issue in your life, you come forward. I'd, I'd love to pray with you this morning as we sing this song together.